Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. And today the question, um, which goes along with the Christmas season, is what is the significance canonically of the manger? Yeah, I hope that we're um, able to explain a little bit further about what canonical means. That's uh, perhaps a new word in your vocab. Um, But uh, when I uh, sat under John Selhammer many years ago, doing uh, some post-grad work under his tutelage, I discovered that um, the Bible, in fact, was written canonically, both Old and New Testaments, and that if we are going to read it the way it was written, it would be best to use a canonical approach. And it basically connects all the dots together that you find all through Scripture. So rather than the Bible being simply 66 books, you know, 27 in the New, 39 in the Old, uh, all separate stories, a canonical approach shows that all the themes that are exposed to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 then are repeated all the way through the Bible. And we can connect the dots. Sometimes, though, our English translations hide the dots. And so we don't see the connection. So from a Hebrew standpoint, that is, when we read the Bible in the Hebrew text, the connections are much more glaring, much more conspicuous, much more easy to see. So I'll be referencing the Hebrew Bible. I hope it it doesn't intimidate you. After all, uh, it it was the the Bible that Jesus read uh, when he grew up and heard it read each Sabbath day in synagogue. So the question that we want to interact with now is, what's the significance of the manger, the feeding trough? Um, Is there a a canonical connection that we can follow? And and the answer is yes. Uh, The manger uh, is not only made of wood, but so was the cross upon which Jesus died at the other end of the book of Luke, uh, a wooden cross, which Paul and Peter call a tree. And that takes us back to the very first uh, series of paragraphs in the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, with regard to trees. Trees play a huge role in the original story. And in fact, uh, human beings are portrayed as trees. Uh, Just as trees uh, have seeds within the fruit that they bear, and therefore the fruit is a way of perpetuating the tree so that the tree really never dies, Uh, Humans are then made after the trees, and they are told to do what the trees are supposed to do, be fruitful and multiply. And so we also, like trees, have seeds within us, and our race is perpetuated like a tree is perpetuated by virtue of the seeds. And in fact, if you look at a tree and look at human beings— There's a lot of similarities. We both stand erect. We both have arms. 
and we both have leaves on top of our head, which turn white <laughs> or turn uh, d various colors in the cold. Uh, in addition to that, if you were to take a picture of the human lungs and then compare them to the root system on a tree turned upside down, they almost look exactly alike. Uh, the little air pockets and lines and so forth in our lungs look very much like a tree's root system. So there are a lot of similarities between trees and humans in the text itself. The intention of the text is to portray humans as trees in some way, shape, or form. Then the trees play a huge role in the Genesis narratives. For example, um, the one tree, which is the tree of life, was placed in the, in the center of the garden, and that tree and the fruit that it bore allowed Adam and Eve to live God's kind of life, allowed them to live eternally. Without that fruit, they would have died. They simply were not born to live forever. They needed to feed on that fruit. Then, of course, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means that since they were not allowed to eat from that tree, they were forbidden from eating that tree, the message from God is, I have knowledge of what evil is, and I have knowledge of what good is, what is beneficial to you. You, therefore, must trust me. So the one humanity was asked to do was to trust God, to lean on God, to lean on God's knowledge of what is tov, good, or what is evil. Then the temptation that follows in Genesis 3 shows that it occurring at a tree. And sin um, that then was then committed by both the man and the woman occurred at that tree, and in response, due to their guilt, they ran and hid in the trees. Then, because they were expelled from Eden, forbidden access uh, to the tree of life, they died. The question of the Bible is, how are we going to get back into God's presence? How are we going to get back into the very first temple? How are we going to get back to Eden Mountain? How are we going to get back with access to the tree of life and live? How do we do that? Well, we follow God's plan, and God's redemptive plan is littered with trees or various all through Old Testament history and in the New Testament as well. And they are signs of hope. They are signs that the way back to the tree of life one day will be provided. But there are hints all through the narratives with various elements that are related to a tree. For example, fruit obviously comes from a tree. Bushes like Moses and the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Then there's stumps like the stump of Jesse or branches like Jesus used in John chapter 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And then there's harvest and fruit and planting and sowing, the so-called uh, parables of the soil or the parables of the farmer. All of these are connected to the original theme introduced to us in Genesis 1, 2, 3. And you can see stories that focus on the life-giving element of a tree. For example, after Israel traveled for three days, after they passed through baptism in the Red Sea, they had no water. And God showed Moses a tree. And after those three days, he threw the 
tree into the water, and the bitter water that they could not drink turned sweet. And immediately after that moment, when a tree, in a sense, was what God used to save them, uh, they reached Elam, which is the place that had 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water. It's an Eden all over again. So it's the story of the Bible that God gives us in five verses. And the role of tree is uh, obviously very important. The story of Noah is also a story not of wood. The ark was made of trees, literally according to the Hebrew text. And so it is trees that brought Noah back to a mountain, Mount Ararat. It was the trees that brought Noah and his family safely through the deluge or through the flood. So these are examples of how the writers do not want us to lose sight of the hope of finding access to the tree of life and once again being in the presence of God. While the New Testament picks up these themes, New Testament writers are fully aware of these elements of trees and bushes and roots and fruit and stumps and branches and other forms or synonyms for trees, Luke picks it up and uh, his first clue that I can see is when Mary uh, gives birth to her firstborn son named Jesus. And the text says very specifically that she places him in a, a manger. Why would she do that? Well, God's presence in the Old Testament was, first of all, placed um, on a mountain after they were expelled from Eden on Mount Sinai. But then God moved his address from the top of the Mount Sinai down to a tabernacle, a portable tent or a portable temple. And God was located on a wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence was like a glory cloud guarded by two cherubim. The same two cherubim, in a sense, that guarded access to the tree of life in the garden. The tabernacle then gave way to a more permanent dwelling called the Solomonic Temple. But God's presence also was confined to that Ark, to that Ark of the Covenant. And inside were the two tablets of stone representing the law of God. And it was upon that Ark of the Covenant on top of the slab made of gold that blood was sprinkled by the high priest as an atonement for the sins of the people. So when Luke tells us that Jesus, who would be the Son of God, and he would be the king whose kingdom would never end, he was the one who was called the Christ and the Lord and the Savior, Luke 2, 11, unto you is born today in the city of David, a Savior who is Messiah, Christ the Lord. By placing Jesus in a manger, Luke is telling us something. With what I've said thus far from Genesis all the way through to this point in Luke, what do you think Luke is trying to tell us when Jesus is placed in a manger? Luke is telling us, or actually more accurately showing us, because this is Luke's way of narrating theology. He shows us rather than tells us. Luke is showing us that now God 
is in a new Ark of the Covenant. And that new Ark of the Covenant, made of wood, is the manger in which Jesus the Savior lives, even though his role at this time is simply a helpless weak, totally dependent on his mom. But uh, the story uh, which occurs uh, just prior to that is of note and of significance. Elizabeth, her relative, greets Mary by saying these important words, which, by the way, do come from Genesis 1 and 2. She said, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Who's that? Who's the fruit of the womb? That's Jesus. The fruit of Mary's womb is Jesus. So here we have Jesus, whose fruit in a tree, in a manger. Jesus is now the new tree of life, and he's placed in a manger, in a new Ark of the Covenant. It's a different format than the Old Testament, but it's Luke's way of telling us through showing that God has come to visit his people. But he changed his address <laughs> from a temple to a woman, Mary, and then finally to a manger. And eventually that on a cross, another piece of wood. And that tr cross, a place of death, would become for us a place of life and forgiveness. So the manger is not simply sentimental, uh, a cute way of describing the story. And yes, it does tell us that our God humbled himself and basically was placed in a cow's dish or a goat's dish or a donkey dish. Truly, it's a mark of humility. But more importantly, it's a dot that connects with all the dots through the Old Testament, littered with trees and bushes and stumps and branches and roots and fruit. And it's, uh, in a sense, climaxing in the manger. So next time you look at that manger, whether you go out on the street and see one on someone's front lawn next door to a church or you sing about it away in a manger no crib for a bed look there and see fruit of mary's womb it's a fruit that you can consume yes it's consume and find life and this is why we take the lord's supper we are consuming jesus the body and the blood it's a great reminder for people who don't necessarily understand a lot of scholarly stuff but it's so plain it's picturesque, it's graphic, it's real. We get it, and I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Thank you much for listening. And if I don't hear from you again, or you don't hear from me again, God bless you and Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us this episode. And remember to send all your questions to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com.